Hi, and welcome to the Imperfect Podcast. My name is Deb Crow, and I will be your host. Join me on this journey as we meet heart-centered leaders from all over the globe. Lots of interesting questions, interesting conversation, and find out what makes a leader. How do they handle uncertainty and complexity? How do they lead in a time that is volatile? Join us. Welcome back to Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. And I'm delighted again to have an incredible heart-centered leader on the show today. I want to introduce you to Paul McCarthy. Again, shout out to LinkedIn. We connected on LinkedIn. We started chatting. The more I got to know Paul and see his work and his background, I thought what an amazing, amazing person to have on the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. And here he is today. We're going to talk to Paul about what's going on in his world, and he's got an upcoming book that's due to release in the spring of 2021 called Fired Leadership. So, Paul, I'm going to welcome you to Imperfect. Deb, thank you. Thank you so much. It's really really great to be here, and I know that we've had some uh, challenges along the way getting here, so really thrilled to be here. Well, it's my pleasure, and... I'm doing something a little different that I haven't done before because number one, we've had some great conversations. I love your LinkedIn profile and how you describe yourself as a positive disruptor. So would you give some insight and wisdom to the listeners and give them a little snapshot and a little background of Paul McCarthy? Yeah, yeah, great. Uh, Well, excellent way to start this um yeah i've been i've been in uh i've been disrupting for almost 25 years now and not just in my professional life but personally i'm i'm, I'm someone that reframes things and, and i get people to think differently about things and, and i seem to have got the the adage the the, the mantle of a positive disruptor along the way so I, i've i've been working in the field of management consulting um all that time really and for various clients, uh, various household names that, that we would all have been aware of. And I've, I've had the opportunity, the good fortune to, to work in leadership capacities for some leading consulting firms. And so I've, I've actually um, departed from that type of work to focus on fired leadership because what I've found through my experiences as being a leader in these consulting firms is that we're uh, we're recruited for for one thing, and then when we display what we're recruited for, we we tend to get in a bit of trouble, and and that's how my whole journey in this area began, around um, understanding what the future is going to need in terms of future leadership traits, and and I came to this this realization that we're actually firing the top talent that we need for the future. And part of this is my own experience of being a disruptor. And I can talk a little bit more about uh, what do I mean by disrupting? Um, But part of it's also looking at the fact that the leadership development process today is broken and no one really wants to talk about it. And what I've found out in my experience of being a leader is that I've stepped on a a bunch of ego-based landmines and I've upset a lot of people because I've been in search of really working to a higher purpose to deliver an organization's sense of purpose. And and to do that, I've been, I've had to disrupt and I've had to change the way people see things. And we just mentioned offline, you know, people don't really like change. And when I've got into an organization, I tend to rub, rub people up the wrong way because they're looking at my actions from an ego based perspective uh, rather than a human-centered, heart-centered perspective. So, my my journey has started on that uh, on that line, um, and so I kind of I'm going to stop there to, to kind of get your perspective on on whether that's where you're heading with this, or whether you want to delve a little bit deeper. Well, it's it's going to be framed in my leadership questions, but I'm excited to have a disruptive mm. conversation because you and I have spoken and. 
I think we've had some, mm. some similar experiences along, along the way in our journey. So I'm going to dive into my leadership questions if you're ready. I am ready. Okay, here we go. So share your experience and also your passion about the human resources component. Paul, with respect to professionals losing their jobs, and in your opinion, for the wrong reason. Mm. So looking at people losing their jobs by being fired, or just, or just being fired, be, losing their jobs for the wrong reasons, uh, being misunderstood. Well, it could. They're both in alignment, so I, I'm going to let you go with whichever direction you want to go with it, because mm. I know it's something you talk about, and I know it's foundational yeah. to your book. Okay, so full transparency to to the the listener here, and and what my my whole work is based upon. I I have been an executive leader fired for the wrong reasons on four occasions. And so I want to, I want to talk by initially by not, not kind of saying this is a pity party or poor me that, you know, um, I deserve to be reemployed. It, it's actually the opposite. I, I find that um, for being the type of leader that I was recruited to be, um, I was fired because uh, what I did, inadvertently was was highlight a broken system now i want to i want to make very clear that um i'm not writing a book and developing a brand around advocating that all people that are fired should be employed and that's what you need for the future there are certainly people that are fired who deserve to be fired you know if they they put their hand in the cookie jar or they you know they they do some fraudulent activity or immoral unethical or illegal activities then they they do deserve to be fired um, what i'm talking about from from the from the human component of this is that um we i mean we're right in the midst of covid which is a global pandemic and i think that as tragic as that is we've also got another pandemic on our hands which is the leadership hypocrisy pandemic and and what do i mean by that well i i went through very time consuming and expensive leader recruitment processes to be hired on as a leader to help build a business and when i when i displayed the traits that i was hired for in fact encouraged that i had and what i mean by that is the ability to be, think differently, um, the ability to be curious and in, in, inquisitive, being real and being vulnerable as a, as a leader being, and, and as a person, um, and being expressive and challenging the status quo. So I was told many times through six to eight interviews with different companies that we want you to be a leader that comes in and, and challenges the way we do things around here. And so that was one of the things I, I've done as a leader. I've had a reputation for, um, and I've been very direct, and transparent in doing that. And and when I displayed those traits as a leader, again having been interviewed for them and gone through very time, time, and uh, very prohibitively expensive process to to come on board, I found that as I started to demonstrate those traits as a leader, it wasn't encouraged. And in fact, what it did, it ran, it ran smack face into uh, the hypocrisy of leadership. And that started getting me very curious about uh, why do we go through such very lengthy and expensive processes to get leaders on board if we don't then allow them to be the leaders that, that we're recruiting for? And, and then I got really interested in the fact that there are, uh, right now as we speak, um, it's... I think it's $7 trillion is, is the estimated cost of disengagement in our, in our global economy. Uh, and that disengagement, you know, that got me thinking, that got me very curious about where does that come from? So I started to, to kind of dissect it. And, and really what I, what I started to realize, again, as I mentioned earlier, is, is, is that the system for leadership, leadership, the leadership model is broken. And I've been fired as a leader who, who having been recruited to, to come in as a human-based leader with the traits that I've mentioned, hasn't been encouraged, hasn't been welcomed. And actually when I've exposed the challenges in, in the system, I've been asked to leave 
and that and that got me curious about whether or not uh, we are developing the leaders of tomorrow with the traits that they will need to navigate ongoing disruption and i don't believe we are and so i started to get even more curious about um, ineffective leadership development and i found a bunch of things actually i found you know again you want to talk about human cost but but financially for for a moment you know if if you're replacing an organization's leader that at an executive level that one one replacement cost is between two and four hundred percent of their base salary and so when you do the the math it's actually a pretty expensive pandemic that, that's being experienced. I mean, we, we don't know the true costs of voluntary, let alone involuntary turnover at leader level. And so I, I became really impassioned about this because A, we're not bringing in the, re- the leaders that we say that we want to bring in. And then when they display the traits that, that we want them to, we don't like that. And then B, if, if we don't like that, we exit those leaders from the organization, which is having a profound impact and cost on our economy. And again, that then got me kind of um, really intrigued by how we were developing our leaders and whether we were developing them in in the effective way needed for the future. Um, And I discovered that we're not. And so my journey has been, I, I never wanted to go down this path. Deb, you know, my, my, my whole process about being a leader was to fit in. You know, I wanted to fit in. I wanted to be that person that had the nice office and the nice accolades. And I, I wanted to toe the line. But what I found when I, when I became involved in being a leader was that, that we have quite a bit of hypocrisy that nobody likes to talk about. We, we really want to keep this subject hidden. And I'm quite honestly, there's a lot of very well, you know, well uh, revered and talented leadership gurus out there and they're all doing great things in their own way. But what they're not doing is they're not talking about this subject in an open and honest way. And I want to talk about this subject. I want to talk about the hypocrisy of leadership. And I want to talk about the ineffectiveness of leadership development. I want to talk about the fact that nobody is addressing the, this deficit that, that is occurring in disengaged leaders, disengaged staff, it's not just leaders, by the way, disengaged workforce. Um, and, and the fact that costs in investment in leadership development is rising, and yet the overall effectiveness or perceived effectiveness of that leadership development is plummeting. Again, nobody's talking about this. And so as COVID has taught us you know, this taught us one thing, it's taught us many things, but one of the things it's taught us is that we need a different type of leader. And we're starting to see that, you know, LinkedIn and, you know, all sorts of things on Twitter coming out about um, empathetic leaders, leaders that need to build rapport. These are all great virtues. You know, we need leaders to be real and vulnerable. Great. But nobody's talking about the fact that when we do get these leaders with these traits, we don't actually want that. We're not ready for it. And, and our culture of leadership hasn't really adapted. So I, I, I'm, I guess, you know, I'm, I'm pioneering a path reluctantly because I didn't want to go down this path, you know, for anyone listening, I wanted to fit in, but I, I found something that I thought I couldn't ignore. And so it's, uh, it's given me that platform to, to build this, this brand from. And really, I want to change the narrative on how we develop future leaders because I don't think we're preparing our leaders for what's coming. So, well, I'm a rather glad. long-winded answer. No, but you know what? It's needed. <laughs> and you know what, Paul? I'm I'm so happy to join you on this path that hasn't been paved. And you know, in the words of Dr. Seuss. Why should we fit in when we're born to stand out? I, I created this podcast for the same alignment and the same reason, because there's too much time and energy in our lives where we try to spend it trying to fit in so that we can be seen as, I'm going to put this word in quotes, normal. I think normal's pretty boring. I know that you think normal is pretty boring. Mm. And when someone is trying to fit in, which is so easy, you go around being completely unnoticed. But then when something gets in your heart, like you've just spoke about and alluded to, 
you can't help but want to draw attention to it because you feel so strong about it. And there's Gallup stats. I mean, the last one I looked at, Paul, was around 67% globally, where senior management and executive leadership felt that they do not have the right leader mm. in the C-suite positions. So if people like you and people like me don't talk about this, then we endorse it. But when we're willing to get on our soapbox and say, something's not right here, something's got to change, the stats that you have found on leader disengagement and replacing those leaders, we need to talk about that mm. because that's money not well spent. So I'm giving you a virtual high five. I'm giving you a kudos. <laughs> and this is why I wanted you on the show. I was so delighted when you reached out. And it puts me into our next question, which I ask everybody. And share with us the imperfections that you bring to your heart-centered leadership. Mm. So sharing my imperfections, yeah, absolutely. Before I do that, this, the stat you quoted about 67%, um, from my research from um, the Brandon Hall group, which was, uh, uh, so not the Brandon, that was one of the studies I looked at, the DDI and the conference board, um, and EY did, I think it was the world's largest research uh, into leadership and leadership effectiveness. They found from over 30,000 um, leaders and CEOs that just 14%, one four um, of CEOs globally have faith and confidence that their leaders can meet their objective, their strategic and business objectives for their organizations in the next five years. And when, when I, when, when you think about that, that's against a backdrop of almost $400 billion. I think it's $366 billion annually that's spent on leadership development around the world. That number is rising. So as I said, rising costs, uh, plummeting, uh, perceived and actual effectiveness. So this is going to only get worse if we don't address it. So uh, it's almost like a great segue onto how I answer this question that you've just asked me about sharing my imperfections. I, I think that there's this kind of, um, how do I put it? I've been that consultant that's gone in and I've created the one page laminate wall menu for for leadership and leadership teams and it have they have great words on it like you know in, integrity and transparency and vulnerability and um, you know open door policy and everything and then once you actually then, then you go into the leader's uh, office and they have that on the wall they have the, the real books about you know being a great leader all the gurus that we probably both know and then you see the way they lead and there's a complete incongruence between all three and so one of the things that I, I think is that we're, we're scared to be imperfect. You know, the leader has to be seen to have the answers. The leader has to have a certain kind of approach to, to the way they work. You know, we band around words like vulnerability and, um, you know, transparency and integrity, like, you know, like they're the next biggest thing. Like, they're, you know, we, we don't actually dig deeper than that to say, okay, we want you to be like that, but when we, when you actually are, we discourage it. We don't actually want you to, to um, do what we say. So and as an example, HBR and Francesca Gino, they, they did a bunch of research um, and it's maybe your listeners know about it, but the business case for curiosity. And, you know, again, it's as a trait, and I call that the inquisitive nature in my, my fired framework. Um, they, they say, you know, in, they encourage curiosity. And, you know, and what comes with curiosity is obviously imperfection and failing as well. And as a trait, it's encouraged and it, it, from the leadership recruitment process, it's sought after, it's questioned about. But then a survey, I think Francesca found of over 500 chief learning officers, they indicated that they actively discouraged curiosity in their leaders. And the reason? It's too expensive. It's too costly. And it might risk fa in failure, result in failure. So we seem to have this contradictory approach. And, and, and how's that relevant to, to your question? Well, it's because we, we, we say that we want leaders to be vulnerable, to show up, to, to share their hearts. But when we, when we do, um, 
we are kind of you know slapped down it's almost like treated as, as pariahs and i'll give you a, a case uh, um, from my own experience about this and and this is in my book that, I'll, that I'll, i'm writing and i'm sure we'll talk about at some point but in in one of the major consulting firms that i was at that they shall remain nameless for, for clear reasons but in one of the, the consulting firms um I went through the very expensive recruitment processes. And, and by the way, for the listeners hearing this, I'm, I actually advocate that being fired from executive leadership positions was probably one of the best things to happen to me in my life. So I'm, I'm not bitter and twisted or jaded at all. I actually think it, it, it was for the best reasons. And, and that takes an incredible amount of self-awareness to, to be able to realize that and to put one's ego aside because, you know, once you can understand, but twice or four times, um, you know, you've got to question yourself whether it's something about you, which obviously I did. But in terms of one of these consulting firms that I was at, um, I was the leader of, of a practice. And, and one night I left the office. It was quite late, as usual, in the consulting industry. Eight o'clock is a usual time to finish. And then um, I, I heard this kind of whimpering in, the, in one of the cubicles that, that was in our office. And I went over there. And it was one of my uh, direct reports who was crying. And uh, I had a choice that day. I could decide to walk past and ignore that crying, or I could be a human-centered, heart-centered leader and go over and ask this person what was wrong. So I know many leaders that would have opted to just leave. It'd been a long day. You'd had such a stressful day um, and you wanted to get home, but you still had work to do at home, you know anyone in the consulting industry understands that that's that's just the way it works i i went and spoke to my colleague and uh, ended up bringing her out for a you know, glass of wine and, and uh, asked her what was going on and just listened she was facing burnout facing uh, you know problems at home because of that burnout overworked and you know as a leader in in the position that i was at i was basically told by the company that i was at you don't fraternize with the people that you report that report into you. So you, you don't actually get involved to understand what their challenges are personally. You're, you're managing them and there's a clear line that you don't cross. I couldn't do that. So by, by the, by the consulting firm in questions point of view, um, I wasn't the perfect leader because I'd shown my imperfection as well by listening to what my colleague had been uh, crying about. And, and I was, I was told, and, and in order to kind of uh, help that individual, you know, there's no playbook for that. You, you have to be completely vulnerable. You have to share your experiences as well of facing burnout. Even if you're a leader, I mean, you've crossed the boundary because basically we're humans, but when, when we're in these big matrix driven organizations, you're one role versus another role and, and you, and you must separate. But I, I, I couldn't turn my, my eye away from that, Deb. You know, I, I had to to show show that I understood and, and was empathetic, but not because it that was my job as a leader, but it was just the right thing to do. And so as a result of that, I, I shared my my imperfections and and you know built more rapport with that individual and was able to help them through the struggles that they were they were experiencing. Now I think the the recruitment of leaders doesn't really doesn't really test for how human you are. Uh, the process is convoluted. It's artificial. It's all based upon competencies and scenarios and contrived situations. Very rarely have I seen any leader recruitment process from my research and my experience that actively asks the leader candidate to share a time when they're about their imperfections. Can you imagine if we were, if we interviewed leaders and we actively sought out experiences that they've had where they you know they they were vulnerable they they felt a sense of shame felt of not measuring up like this would really enable us to understand what they're really like as real humans um, so again another long long way of answering your question but i, I think um, we need to change the narrative on on the types of leader that we're recruiting because you know like that one-page laminate menu uh, uh, strategy map that I mentioned earlier that I've done with leaders and leadership teams, you know, we are 
we are at risk of of almost making making the concept of being vulnerable and um, imperfect a caricature of itself. And and I I really think we're missing out on on building genuine relationships with people based upon our vulnerabilities. And there is a school of thought that says if you are if you share your vulnerabilities and your imperfections, then in a Machiavellian way, your colleagues are going to use that against you to get the next rung on the ladder. And, and that's not the type of organization of the future that awaits us. I mean, many of your listeners might be aware of reinventing organizations by Frederick Leloux, where he talks about teal-based organizations, which are self-managing structures. And, and they're based on a sense of higher evolutionary purpose. So in the future, leaders and staff will all be working in order to to meet what that purpose is and and egos and agendas and silos and what i call leader groupthink won't be a part of those types of structures and that's what i believe we're not preparing our leaders today for in terms of your question um, in being imperfect we need that that rawness that vulnerability in order to to meet the demands of the future well, 100%. And I, it's coming back down to IQ versus EQ, and you and I could do a whole other podcast on that. You, you sagged way nicely into my third question, Paul. What is one strategy that you feel could be implemented to break down the wall that CEOs or C-suite leaders and execu executive teams may have, that wall of resistance to allow some heart-centered leadership traits to come to the forefront? Mm. Great question. Uh, and often I, I think if I had the complete answer to that, then I would, um, you know, I would be selling it. In fact, I'd be giving it away. And uh, because my, you know, it comes down really to honest conversation and really putting the agendas aside, putting the egos aside, um, putting leader group think aside and really looking in the whites of somebody's eyes and having that difficult conversation in a respectful, courteous manner, but a forward thinking manner. And, I, and I've seen so many um, leadership teams that are not having the types of conversations that matter. They are all trying to protect their turf. They're all trying to, you know, angle for that much coveted set of resources to help them with their projects. And yet they talk as that they are one collective as a leadership team, but they don't embody the traits of being a collective leadership team. So I, I think to, to kind of address that wall of resistance, we need to, to really create the conditions for an honest conversation, which means we need to be aware of our biases. We need to be aware of the role that we play in, in, in furthering this, this toxicity. I mean, I, I, I call it toxicity because I've seen so many leadership teams work together you know i've been brought in to address alignment between them and or misalignment and you know one of the things i do as a, a facilitator in those sessions is i i do some workshops and i show them um, an image of a cracked pipe um, and you may remember um, one of bp's worst oil spills which um, was was traced back i believe it was the gulf of mexico it was traced back to being because of this cracked pipe now the, the firm, I'm not sure I can name the firm just from a legal perspective, but the firm responsible for the maintenance of those, those pipes um, left unchecked certain, certain hairline fractures in these pipes. And basically that, that was what started this, this oil spill. And I, I put that image up for leadership teams and, and as you can imagine, they're, they're wondering what that image is there for. And I, and I, I use it to say, look, um, you may think that there's nothing wrong with your leadership team today. You, you, may, you may have accepted things like silo-based thinking or the meeting before the meeting or the, the post-meeting after the meeting, or, or you might think it's normal, the fact that you defer to the, high, the most senior person in the room's views. And you, you may think all of that, there's no problem. And we call that normalization of deviance. I, I write about it in my book. But that's exactly what happened with the hairline fracture. Uh, it was overlooked and it was accepted. And so what I'm saying this for is that leadership teams get into the habit of normalizing the things that make them toxic and dysfunctional. 
and they they overlook it so it's like it's normal that fred is going to talk to to joe offline because he doesn't like what sue's doing in that relate in, in relation to that project so they're going to have a private meeting now we've accepted that as the norm my suggestion is let's bring that out from under the stairs let's change the narrative let's have a conversation that's honest that addresses this and and i've done this with a few leadership teams and i've done this using that analogy and that that picture of the the the, the pipe that i showed and i've i've used that as a way to to get leaders to self-reflect and then come back to express you know their the challenges that they experience and, and often um you know when when leaders have resistance it's because there's there's a lack of self-awareness on their part um there's also a, uh, an undefined leadership culture that they want to have in place so second thing for me is to to you know honest conversation one second thing is to say what is the type of leadership culture we want to create and what does that look like in terms of the behaviors that we display as leaders and how are we going to be measured for displaying those behaviors um, and let, let's start that foundational building using that approach and i and i work with leadership teams in that capacity in fact in my book i i give away a whole set of recommendations and activities on how leaders and leadership teams can take what i'm doing and to implement into their organization and i do that just because I think it's the right way forward, Deb. You know, I, I don't think we should be hoarding all of the IP and the assets that we create because I'm really in this to help leadership teams be the best that they can be. And so, you know, my strategy is, is to start by having those honest conversations, create the conditions. Um, well, I, I'm, we are so in alignment. You're, you're doing it through your book and I'm doing it through the podcast. My last question, Paul, is talk to us about the word fired, and you've trademarked mm. it. Fired mm -hmm. stands for fresh thinking, inquisitive, real and accountable, expressive and challenging, direct and transparent. Where did the innovation come and the thought process for this and your book? Mm. <laughs> uh, as I said you know, earlier on, I, I never wanted to be that leader that didn't fit in. You know, I, I did always want to fit in. And when I, when I realized um, that I was being fired for, for various reasons that became um, almost in my mind, I, I would be fired for one thing um, in one company and then go to the next company being fired for the exact same thing. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, um, again, come back to the leader recruitment process in order to answer this question. You know, I was always told you, we want a leader that's going to bring new thinking. It's going to question things. It's going to leave no, no stone unturned. We want you to be who you are. We, we don't want you to wear a mask. We want you to show up as who you are. And we want you to be the person in the room that's challenging people and questioning why we've always done it. And we want, we don't want you to be around the bush in terms of, we want you to actually be very straightforward. So as a leader being hired for those those qualities, I, I, they would later become the fired traits. I didn't know it at the time, but that's the way I've been working for 20, 25 years with clients as well as consulting firms that I've been building and helping to build. When I got on board and I displayed what exactly the recruitment process had asked me to display, that's when I got into trouble. I started to step on ego-based landmines of other leaders because I questioned things. You know, I said, well, you told me in the recruitment process, you had a vision for this, for the growth of the, the practice. Can I see the vision? Oh no, you know, that we don't have a vision. So again, the expressive in me, I was challenging and asking and, 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 and really uncovering, un, uh, uncovering um, the, the rising hypocrisy and toxicity of leadership teams and cultures. And so again, in that capacity, when when you bring a leader on who is different from the status quo of leaders but you've specifically been brought on because you are different and then you're sidelined well the only other option is unless you fall into line and join that leader group think is you will leave and you'll either leave voluntarily or you'll be fired that's happened to me that's that's been my journey and and therefore i've been fired for being the leader that i've been asked to be through the recruitment process and i yeah, I went into a room, a dark room, as you can imagine, and I reflected and, and I was wondering, is it just me? Am I the common denominator? 
yes, I am. And, and the reason I am is because I started, uh, I displayed certain qualities. So what I did, Deb, quite, quite literally, and this is in the book that I talk about it, is I got a sheet of paper and I started writing down all the reasons why I believe I've been fired. And then I started to cluster them into categories. So a typical consultant, and I was looking for themes. Once I saw these themes, I started to look for words to describe these themes. And we, we had, um, you know, innovation. We had um, curiosity. We had challenger. We had questioner. We had um, real. And, and then I started to quite literally look for synonyms of these words. And those synonyms, as you could imagine, a synonym will produce so many more synonyms. And there were hundreds. So I narrowed it down to these five core things. I didn't know what they were at the time. And then I started, I just picked out, oh, innovation, fresh thinking. That's what I was doing. I was, I was daring to think and act differently. I called it fresh thinking. Inquisitive nature was the product of curiosity and always kind of you know, questioning. So that was the inquisitive nature. Um, the vulnerability, the real, um, that became real and accountable. You know, the fact that I was always uh, challenging the way things were done. Again, being brought in as a leader to do that that became expressive and challenging. And then the last one was that this whole, like um, being straightforward, cutting through the crap. I mean, Gary Hamill talks about in his research, 16 million meetings happen every day across the US. And we, we spend 50% of our time in meetings that are unproductive. So I would always cut through the crap. Like why have a meeting for the sake of a meeting? Why not talk about what you really wanna talk about instead of using meetings to just ratify a decision, and, and, but, but say that they were collaborative, but you already know the decision before you have the meeting. So I cut through the crap and straightforward, and that became direct and transparent. And so I sat there, and then before I knew it, fired became a framework. And, and in parallel to the work that I was doing to critique the leadership recruitment process and the way that we develop leaders, I started to think, well, the fired framework is actually a framework to develop future leaders. And, and since then, I've developed the Fired Leader Framework. I've already, uh, already developed a, a Fired Leader coaching program, and we're in the process of developing a Fired Leadership Learning Program. And so that, that whole experience of mine of being fired, you know, I said four times, um, led to, to my self-reflection, my analysis, and, and some kind of real dark moments. I have to say, I mean, you know, as we're talking about human-centered themes here, you know, going against the grain and being an outlier and, and if I can say it on air, being a shit disturber, but a shit disturber with a purpose, um, is a very lonely, a very lonely uh, path to follow. I mean, you mentioned at the beginning, no one's gone down this path that I'm going down. And I might be ridiculed and treated as pariah because I'm questioning an industry that quite literally has creamed a lot of money off of clients around the world I'm talking about the leadership development industry um, and provided quite ineffective outputs. I'm questioning all that. And so that is a very challenging thing to do sometimes. And I often wake up at night and, you know, people around me that are close to me know this very well about me. I get affected by it because I'm, I'm, I'm questioning the way the whole system works and, and I can't not be, you know, I can't not be affected by that. And so I've had people say to me, stay in your lane, um, why would you bother upsetting the apple cart? I've had friends and some family who have misunderstood me and, and, and tried to dissuade me. Uh, but I know that the system is broken. I've seen the research. I've experienced it as a leader. I've seen clients tell me the same thing. But we're all too scared to bite the hand that feeds us. Fired leadership is not. And that, that's why for me, you know, I was in a coffee shop with a dear friend of mine, Kerry. She knows who she is. And she said to me, why do you think you've been fired four times? And herself, a very prominent figure in learning and development. And I said unequivocally, without even thinking about it, because I practice what I preach as a human. And I practice what I preach as a leader. And the world of leadership has not been ready for that. And so that was what was the impetus for what I just described, Deb. Um, oh, I, I so love it. And, a, and you're the first person to swear on my podcast. 
but, oh, no, but, I'll, but I'll join you. I will be a fellow disruptor and, and shit disturber with you and find me any element in history where there had to be some disruption or some upheaval for change. Mm. Even if it wasn't initially embraced, Paul, it eventually was when people see the foundation. And when you lead with heart and within your heart, there's love that's never belonged in the same sentence as leadership. And I think COVID's really opening a lot of people's eyes. It's changing leadership. It's changing the vantage point of what people perceive of leadership. And those who chose to be complacent are no longer leading because C-suite leaders have had time to exhale and breathe and review things. Mm. So. I think you're on a very good path. I think I'm on a path beside you, just using it in a different language and a different modality. And I'm excited that, you know, you've shared your heart, you've shared your passion. I'll be excited to get a copy of your book when it comes out and let's shift gears. And I'm going to ask you my fab four. So these are just Four fun questions. Whatever's sitting on the top of that fired up mind of yours. Are you ready? <laughs> I am. Just before you do that, I would ask, um, I would just, it may be not for discussion, but just a reflection question for us and, and the listeners. Why did it take COVID for us to uncover the, the real value globally of being a human-centered leader? Why did it take COVID when we know that this has been happening and brewing and coming to the surface for years, but, but we don't talk about it. And so my, my, my theory on this, I've got many theories, but I also think that there's going to be more COVID. There's going to be more situations like this, but why did it take this um, for us to actually launch into this, this uh, realm? Um, anyway, just something to, for people to, to reflect on. But oh, absolutely, absolutely ready for your fun questions. Yeah, and I, you know, just to, to weigh in on that, I think if we look at history and all of the horrific things that have happened in our lifetime and even what we've learned, you know, in history classes ourselves, there's always something good to come out of something bad. And it's, you know, mm. looking at that half full, half empty mindset and i think things come to a head if you will and 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 break break down become unstructured and i think it allows us time to pause and reflect to allow new to come in but we're going to mm. let the listeners sit with that and people can weigh in on it okay first fab four question favorite childhood mm. memory and why Oh, favorite childhood memory and why? Mm, great question. I, I loved, um, as a kid, we went down to the seaside and uh, for the summer. And, you know, I came from a, quite an impoverished background and, and we didn't have many holidays. And we'd always go down to uh, the same place, a place called Walton-on-the-Nays in Essex. And we'd hire a little caravan, actually. I guess you'd call it a trailer in North America. And just going down there and, and being close to the, the sea and hearing the, the seagulls and just the freshness of the air. You know, I was on probably only nine or ten. And we did that for about three or four years. Um, and just that sense of freedom. You know, just nobody, nobody telling me what to do and having such access to nature and just felt so different, so inspired as a nine, you know, nine, 10 year old. Um, so I, I have those memories in my, my heart. They're very fond. Um, Lovely. And uh, there was no playbook for that. So Lovely. thank you. If you could have dinner with anyone in leadership who is still alive or has passed away, who would it be and why? Mm. Um, Hmm. I would be very interested to have a conversation with um, Nelson Mandela. I, um, it's a very personal thing for me. I went to South Africa. I went to Robben Island where he was incarcerated for 27 years or so. And I looked at his cell and it was, I think it was like a six by six cell. And he was 
he was kept in his cell 23 hours a day with one hour exercise, I believe, outside. And many may not know this, but he, he would run on the spot for about six or seven kilometers um, on the spot. And when he left, when he was released under the whole, um, you know, everything that was politically going on at that time and he was released, he, he spent, I think, almost a year on Robben Island playing soccer with the people who had incarcerated him and, and treated him very badly and, you know, all sorts of uh, things that happened to him. So from a, from a human-based approach to leadership, and just just from the traits of being an exemplary exemplary human, you know, I would love to just sit down and ask him, like, how was he able to do that? Like, because we've all got egos. Let's let's be honest. We've all got egos, and we all allow our egos to run the show. And we we the level of self awareness that we have enables us to catch that, and we we can course correct. But but. You know, when someone has been treated so, so shockingly um, for one's political views and beliefs and for the color of their skin, how could they put all of that aside and actually spend time getting to know their captors? And, and, and for those who play soccer, they know it's a very, it's a team oriented sport how could he then play soccer with these people and and get to know them on a different level i mean that that to me is the ultimate in in being an exemplary human now i'm sure there are many that think that there are other things about nelson mandela's character that would be questionable and and, and we're not here to debate that but but the actual that actual showing of of being a human i mean it just gives me goosebumps when i think about it because i i saw the conditions he lived in um so that that would be one who's passed away um and i i think if i was someone that's still living um that's an interesting question for me that that um uh, in my book i um probably no one's heard of this person um but a guy called nick cirillo nick cirillo uh, owned a series of sub sub shops and pizza joints outside of in Illinois. And he coined the term brave leadership for what I'm about to tell you. And he had launched his businesses and he expanded a franchise and, and he'd launched too quickly and he was running out of money. And he, he was advised that he had about four weeks left for one of his shops to, you know, it would close if it didn't get any more business. And against the advice, I must say, against the advice of everyone, bank managers, shareholders, family, friends, he wrote a public letter and sent it to all of his employees. And in that letter, he accepted full responsibility for what was about to happen. And he demonstrated his realness and he was accountable to his realness uh, in that letter. And didn't seek to blame anyone, didn't seek to offload it and throw anyone under the bus. As we all know, leaders, there are some leaders that do that and have baked it into their culture, hence the, the cracked pipe analogy that we talked about earlier, and they think of it as normal. But he owned it. He owned the fact that he had expanded too quickly and it was all his responsibility. And he basically asked people to, to help him out. And he displayed such vulnerability and bravery and you know, I, I reference him in the book and I'm in conversations to, to speak with him as well. I'd love to, to, to get involved with him somehow. And so I just think that sense of raw, brave vulnerability is, as we talked about earlier, you know, in relation to sharing our imperfections, it's such, you know, we band that term around by saying we want people to be vulnerable. And, you know, there's this whole pioneering work by Brené Brown and everybody jumps on that and talks about that. But in reality, it's so, so different to display that. There is no playbook for that. There is no leadership development program or offering that you can put people on to get that. And, and so for me, that's, that's the second person that I would want to have uh, a conversation with over dinner. Well, that was a goosebump moment for me because Nelson Mandela is who I would like to have dinner with. So that's very mm. interesting that we're in alignment there. 
My last question mm -hmm. is I'm going to give you one word and you can't think about it to describe 2020. What's the one word? Ah, creative. Mm. Yeah, creative. Absolutely. Do you, to, do you want me to explain that or? Um... Uh, no, absolutely. Why, <laughs> when you think of back of 2020 and we're almost to the end, You've got a positive word of creative, which I can align yeah. with, but I, I would love to hear, I would love for you to finish the podcast and, and just give us your insight on why you picked that word. Mm, I'd love to. Thank you. Um, yeah, 2020 was hard, you know, and it is hard and it will get harder. And, and, you know, I started the year on a personal note, I started the year uh, leaving, uh, leaving a, a key client in Toronto because ironically they weren't, they weren't demonstrating the leadership and the real leadership that, need, that was needed to, um, to actually do what they needed to do. Great bunch of people, great organization, but they just weren't there. So at the start of the year, I left that, um, I moved locations. So from Toronto and Edmonton and I moved to the mountains in BC um, and then COVID hit and uh, I was actually in the process of getting my book written and um, some challenges happened there. And so faced with this, again, there's no playbook for this, you know, COVID started to happen pretty quickly and, you know, everything in my personal life, as I mentioned, was, was, was happening. And I, I thought to myself, I can either allow all this to affect me and just get on top of me and have a scarcity mindset or I could look at this through an abundance mindset. And what I did was the abundance mindset. It hasn't been without its challenges, but what that's led to was me using the whole year to basically finish off my manuscript, start to develop my fired leadership brand, explore five or six different revenue streams, say goodbye to some things that haven't worked for me in my life, and really started to look at what do I want my legacy to be? And I tell you, Deb, when you, when you have that momentum and it drives you, and again, it's not without its challenges, but when you have that freedom to be creative, like everybody's worrying about jobs and their health and money and, and the world and everything like that. You know, we, we see people running out to hoard toilet rolls and toilet papers, right? I took the opposite view. I invested in myself and that investment in myself led to more creativity. And so for me, the whole year has probably been one of the toughest years of my life, but it's also been the most creative year of my life. And so um, it all depends on our mindset about things and how we, how we approach something. And you know, for that, I'm grateful, eternally grateful. So well, that's, that's the, the logic behind the, the word. Well, congratulations on a creative year and glad our paths have crossed. I think there's going to be many more conversations to be had between mm. you and I. And thank you for sharing <laughs> your, your time and expertise. And I'd like to finish the podcast with my list of five things that I feel help us live a purposeful life. Follow your heart, have passion, do your best know your truth, and always be in love with the journey. This is Deb Crow. Thank you for joining me once again on Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast.